الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وأعطى رسول الله من الأصبيس اللسن بيرد العصيس
In what? Corruption. This is the different in the different times. The youth have become pillars of society in corruption. The crime, the drugs, all of them. Thank <laughs> you. 
course, we know this is not the way of Rasulullah He didn't teach his companions with a cane in his hand. Nor did his companions teach their children with canes. That was not the way. The early generations, they didn't teach that way. This way crept in amongst Muslims when Islam in the Muslim world had become weak. When the Muslim nations declined in the 13th century after the sacking of Baghdad by the Mongols and the burning of the libraries of Baghdad, etc. Then you found the rise of these kinds of practices. But it wasn't a norm then. Now it has become a norm. So we said that these schools, for the most part, do not provide proper Islamic education, which could compete with the regular school. So that was the dilemma. We said that the only solution was for the Muslim community to realize this big mistake, realize the damage that has been done, and to take necessary steps to correct it. It is something which can be corrected, it's not impossible, but we just have to be committed, work together, make the necessary efforts, and we can do That's what we discussed yesterday. Today, as youth, those of you that are here in the masjid, Obviously, forced you to be here. You didn't really actually plan to be here. How many were forced to come here? <laughs> be honest. You really didn't want to come. But your father said, you've got to go. Nobody? Not one? Okay. Anyway, I'm assuming that So, what we want to do in this session today is, on one hand, we wanted to address the questions which were raised uh, yesterday, and we had a whole stack of them, and a big promise was made that they would be addressed today, but unfortunately, somehow, that stack of questions have disappeared. So, we wanted to keep this session as an open session for you to question whatever you feel, what are your concerns as young people, what you think needs to be done uh, to give you a, a greater role in uplifting the Muslim community. Because, of course, you are the future. You are the future of the Muslim community. When we look at you, we see the future. If you, if you don't watch ideas you have, this is what you are going to implement when, you, when the reins of leadership fall into your hands. You must have some ideas from now. So, I am asking you now to share. Let us discuss some of the ideas that you might have, some of the issues that you feel need to be addressed uh, by the community now before the time comes when you take over. Okay? So who will begin? What Said, I'll give you a lot of 
teach the children salah at the age of seven. وَضْرِبُوهُمْ عَلَيْهَا بِعَشْرِ And thank them for it at the age of ten. Thank them for it at the age of ten. Teach them salah at seven and thank them at the age of ten. On one hand, teaching them salah means that they need to learn not only how to do the movements of prayer, because sometimes people think it's just to learn how to move your hands and bow. And... No. Teach salah means teaching them everything about salah. They know about wudu and what breaks wudu and they're taught properly what is salah. That's teaching them salah. And we know that because there's a well-known narration, one of the companions, he said that he and some members of his tribe had come to accept Islam from Muhammad And they were taught Quran, they stayed with him for a period of time, and then they went back to their tribe. They accepted Islam for the whole tribe, you know, on behalf of the tribe, they accepted Islam for the whole tribe. So when they came back, the group that had stayed there and had studied Islam with the Prophet and his companions, after that, Prophet Muhammad, uh, the, the companion who narrated this, he said that when the time for Salah came, when the time for Salah came, we looked around to see who was the most knowledgeable concerning the Quran. The Prophet had said, let the one who is most knowledgeable of the Quran lead the Salah. That's what the Prophet had said. So he said, we looked around and it turned out that I knew the most Quran. So he said, I led my tribe from that time onward, Salah, and I was six or seven years old at the time. I was six or seven years old at the time. So this is telling us that when uh, the instruction to teach Salah, it didn't mean just teach movements. Because how can you lead Salah? You don't know the rules, what happens if you break wudu, what happens whilst you know, you're... Uh, if you forget an ayah, anything happens, what do you do? You forget the rak'ah. If you don't understand what to do in the, all of these cases, then how can you be taught? You must have that basic knowledge. So, the point is that, that basic knowledge of salah should be established. When the child reaches the age of 10, then he should be praying regularly. If he's not getting up to pray, then you may spank him. Spanking doesn't mean brutalizing. And you get the biggest cane or shoe that you can find and you start beating him till he has lumps and cut skin is discolored. And all that stuff it means. It's not what it means. This is only a reminder to him of the importance of Saul. And we have to say that though the child is 10 years old, Salah is not obligatory on a 10 year old. But the Prophet encouraged us to begin the child's preparation for Salah when he becomes a, a teenager, he's become valid, he's reached what in Islam is considered to be adulthood, <coughs> uh, puberty, when Salah now becomes obligatory on him, that 
he's not been allowed not to pray all the way until he reaches 13, and now he'll say, Salah is obligatory five times a day. He's going to rebel. He's going to fight back. He's not going to want to accept to do it like this. So, Prophet set up a system of preparing the children for Salah. So that spanking is to help that child achieve what is obligatory. Achieve what is obligatory. Now, when you're teaching, in general, teaching, though seeking knowledge in general is obligatory, the particular subject you're teaching may not be obligatory. So to use that as a basis now to uh, beat children in the educational process, we say this is not an acceptable argument. Why? Because were it acceptable, then the Sahaba would have done it. They would have been known to do it. But we don't have in the record of the Athar of the Sahaba, that they were beaten to learn Islam or beaten to memorize Quran. This was not their way. So it's not just to take a statement of the Prophet and then apply it as you feel fit. Basically applying it to justify Actions which in fact are against the way of the Prophet and his companions. I say, whenever we have a hadith which involves uh, instructions like this, we have to look and see how did the Sahaba understand this? We have to understand it as they understood it. Why? Because, for example, <coughs> we all know. We should all that Prophet said, <laughs> If any of you enters the masjid, you should not sit down until you do two units of prayer. So strong that on one occasion during his khutbah, khutbah to Jum'ah, in the midst of khutbah to Jum'ah, a man came in and sat down, and the Prophet stopped the khutbah and asked, and asked the man, did he make his turaqat? And the man said, he didn't. And Make one imam 
Syria where Muslims are being attacked. I'm not saying at that time you don't fight back. No, no, that's the time. You have to defend your family, defend your community. You fight back then. Because you have no other choice. It's right in front of your face. But now when you talk about leaving Kenya and going somewhere else, another part of the world, then you want to be sure that what you're going to be doing is correct. And the only way, as Allah said, فَسْحَلُوا أَحْلَ الْفِكْرِ Ask those who know if you don't know. Those of knowledge in your community who have correct qualifications to be your leaders, ulama, scholars, you will turn to them, get correct information before undertaking any such uh, endeavors. Today, those people who are financially stable are the only people. Those who are financially stable are the only people like the ulama. And they are not willing to assist the young. Or if they do, maybe at the cut or any other times they bring something that will assist the young. So the young are not enough. They don't have the ability to learn the knowledge of Deen somehow. We are supposed to learn uh, eight years of primary, four years of secondary, and four years of uh, university. In the age of 25 or 26, we are supposed then to look after our family or to make our own family. So I don't have the right or the, the chance to learn the reason and then to make to defend the religion. So where can we stand? Or where can we start to be able to make our society and our children and ourselves to stand in a better position to support them? Others question and I repeat it because there are sisters here, women also listening and they may not be able to hear or have an external mic and they can uh, listen to uh, is that as a young person studying himself um, he feels that those who have the economic means and power uh, are elders uh, and um, he mentioned that uh, they are ulama, <coughs> probably it's not quite true, the ulama are probably fuqara in general, this <laughs> is the reality. Uh, there are people in the society who are big businessmen, they have the needs, etc. And uh, they are not uh, forthcoming in setting up ways and means for young people to properly educate themselves in Islam. So the young person is forced to go through the basic educational system, you know, into the tertiary levels, the college levels, and then after that they're required to look after a family. So where do they get the opportunity to study about Islam? Well, as I said from yesterday, it is a responsibility of those in the community who have the means to uh, to develop proper institutions which can ensure that our youths are studying both the academic subjects as well as the Islamic subjects and even the academic subjects should be studied from an Islamic perspective so that they come through with a well-rounded education this is uh, really a major requirement for the community to be successful. It has to develop its own institutions which would then provide proper education. Because for you to go through the primary levels uh, to the secondary levels and have not received a good Islamic foundation, it's a failure on the part of the community. This is a community obligation, what they refer to as kifaya. It is the obligation of the community to provide proper educational opportunities for its children, its youths, to be uh, properly uh, guided Islamically, so that they, when they enter into tertiary level, BA, MA, 
education, postgraduate, they have are entering with a solid foundation. And in fact, it's even better if we are able to set up colleges which would also provide the uh, necessary educational, uh, Islamic educational perspective. <coughs> so the solution for those of you who don't have uh, access to traditional channel <coughs> is to uh, approach, because from what I've heard from my visit here, there are programs that are being run, you know, where uh, whether it's on a weekend basis or during uh, special holidays or during summers, etc., where some of the leading institutions do have programs for students. I mean, it's not easy because, of course, it means studying outside of your regular study hours, again, in other institutions, which makes it a bit difficult because really, I mean, study should be within a particular period of time that you should have time where you can relax and socialize as a part of your day. It shouldn't be study from dawn till, you know, till you go back to sleep at night. So there should be some balance here. But uh, there are opportunities for those who want to gain it, gain knowledge in the society, in the community, young people. There are some. There are not enough opportunities, and they're not probably properly developed, but they still do exist. Right? And um, I don't know if uh, you want to say something of that as a solution for uh, what our young brother is saying. As a college, are you a college student? No, secondary. secondary level student. You know what? Can you give a couple of examples of programs that are available for secondary level students to be able to uh, increase their Islamic knowledge? You know some consistent programs here in Nairobi. Uh, the ideal situation would be uh, in an integrated school. Uh, but there are very, very few, of course, uh, uh, in Kenya. But at least uh, in a school where that environment uh, is there, for example, Wami High School uh, and the like. Uh, Abu Hurairah would be the best ideal uh, situation in Mombasa. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, even the capacity uh, cannot accommodate all the students. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the reality is uh, not, not all students can go to Abu Hurairah or Wami High School and the like, yeah? Uh, but there are other programs. So, for example, uh, every school holiday, Alhamdulillah, there, there are programs for uh, Wami does it every uh, August, every whatever. Uh, and, and there are other organizations as well. Although sometimes it's a 10-day or one-week uh, program for, for students. Uh, either secondary school students or colleges and university students, yeah, both for the for the ladies and for uh, for the girls or for the boys and, uh, and for the girls, yeah. And there are other programs which are which are there. Uh, for example, at Pakrot, uh, there there are studies for for evening classes, yeah, and quite a number of uh, the youth, mashallah, they attend uh, classes. There are durus and, and the other programs. Uh, uh, also for, for the new revertees at Jamia, they have a weekend program and they also have evening uh, classes and, and the like. So it depends on a person, uh, how active that person uh, is, uh, uh, and also access to, uh, uh, to technology uh, in the positive way, uh, internet and, and the like. Uh, what is the ruling concerning the beard? And a Muslim man shaves his beard. Now this is fairly simple. Growing the beard is fard. It is an obligation. To shave the beard is haram. And it is a sin. And you should understand that though uh, you may find some people saying, no, growing the beard is sunnah. This is the usual response to those who shave beards. They say, growing the beard is sunnah. No, it's not fun. Uh, we have to understand that how we define what is sunnah and what is far 
is not an arbitrary <coughs> process. Meaning, your local scholar, he has a bottle. In that bottle, he has five pieces of paper. One paper says, Farm. Another one says, Sunnah. Another one says, Mubah. Another one says, Makroom. Another one says, Haram. So every time you call up, you ask for a fatwa, you come into his office, he sticks his hand in the bottle, whichever one he pulls out, he reads for you, Haram. <laughs> this is not the process. Right? We don't determine Halal and Haram, Farm, this way. That is what we call an arbitrary process. No. When something is fun, obligatory, wajib, this is when there is a clear command of the Prophet to do it. When it is haram, there is a clear prohibition from the Prophet to not do it without any exception. To not do what is haram is fard. And to not do what is fard is haram. They are linked. So, when we look at the issue of the beard, beard, what we find is that Prophet Muhammad in authentic hadith, in Bukhari and Muslim, clearly command, grow your beards and trim your mustaches. Distinguish yourself from the pagans and the Jews. Grow your beards and trim your mustaches. Distinguish yourself from the pagans and the Jews. Clear. Therefore, that being a command of the Prophet it means that it is wajib, farm to grow your beard. And to not do what is farm, we said, is haram. Praying five times daily is farad. To not pray five times daily is haram. So on that basis, we say that growing the beard is farad and shaving it is haram. Uh, what correcting methods or corrective methods should our teachers in the madrasas and integrated schools apply? <coughs> our children behavior has been corrupted by Western culture. Well, as I have stressed, those who are teaching should be trained teachers. Those who are teaching in the madrasas, those who are teaching in the They should be trained teachers. We have to get them to get for themselves proper uh, educational qualifications which would enable them to teach effectively. So the correction starts with the teachers. Then you look at the students. The teachers who are properly trained, they know how to manage a class, how to deal with unruly students and all these kinds of things. Those who are not properly trained, then the only method that they know is the cave. So the solution starts with training the teachers properly.
Al-Wazail laha akam akam makasim. That if you want to teach a young child salah, he also has no idea what to perform or read the Quran. And if he can't read the Quran, he can't perform the salah. So he was using this uh, rule of usul to support reading. And also he brought a lot of athar. For example, in, uh, he says in the book of Sirah Alam Nabulali Imam Dahab, the Prophet's aunt, she was called Sophia something of forgotten. She used to be Zubair bin Awam. And the Sahaba, and he said that the Prophet knew this. And he said that the crowd of the Prophet means as if when he approves something, it's what? It becomes what? So he said that they used, uh, the concurrence of the Prophet used to tell them, it is not the severe caning which leaves marks on people's bodies and things like this. So we don't have any defense for that. He was against that. He said that uh, most people misuse the king. In fact, he read some of the, the children of Moses, but he said that, in fact, you can uh, use modern examples of some schools in America Britain, where some of the teachers even call them the return of the king as a means of discipline. And in fact, he said that in some schools in Texas, they went beyond that and called the teachers to bring guns inside school for their own personal defense. But that's the point is that, the point is that, as I said, were it something good, then we would have this as a widespread practice among the Sahaba and the Tabi'een and the Tabi'een Tabi'een. We would hear Imam Malik, Shafi and others saying, my mom used to whip me and my uncle used to whip me. And when we read their stories, we don't hear these stories. We don't, we don't hear it. I mean, the fact that you bring one story, you know, and he claims that the Prophet knew it. Because that's a claim. You have to, how do you establish that claim? You know, as I said, I need to look into what is the wording, the argument, because uh, to claim that that in fact was known to the Prophet and he gave permission, you know, uh, this may have been an exception. And that's what it would appear to be an exception to the rule. What was the norm? The norm was that this was widespread and known. But we have exceptions. Like when the Prophet ﷺ, you know, gave permission for an adult in the home of one of the uh, female companions to drink her milk. <laughs> we don't build rules on top of that. This was an exception. So I would, you know, have to look at those, those arguments, look at them uh, systematically to, to uh, refute the basis of the argument. But I would say this is enough to to see in the lives of the early generation that this was not the common practice. Today, when we look at it, we have to say it is the norm. It is the norm. Having that stick and beating the kids with the stick and everything, it is the norm. So, uh, the fact that you may use a cane, or you may use what you know, is called corporal punishment, under exceptional circumstances, where there are you know, extreme circumstances demanding it, we say, you know, the exceptions don't have rules. We don't make rules based on exceptions. So I would not deny that there may be exceptional cases, but to, for it to be the norm, no. We don't have evidence to support it from the practice of Rasulullah's companions. So I would say they're the best interpreters, so I would argue against that. What are the factors we need to consider before choosing a career or course of study as Muslim youth? This is an important question, you know, as you look to towards your future studies, graduating, going into higher studies, you do have to be clear on your goals for study. You have to be clear. You have to know what you're going into university for and what you're gaining, the knowledge that you're gaining there, you have to have some idea of how you're going to Otherwise, you will go and wait.
your time, end up in courses that you shouldn't have been in, and graduate and really not be a beneficial member of the community. And Prophet Muhammad had said, Khairul Nas and Fa'ul Nas, the best of people are those most beneficial to the people. We know from that that the educational classes should produce individuals who are beneficial to the society. So the courses that you take should be ones which will really help to uplift the Muslim community, benefit the community, while benefiting yourself because it's also a means for earning your own living, etc. But it should be one which would benefit uh, the community. Now, we also have the issue of certain specializations, which in general may be beneficial to the community, but for a Muslim, it is not appropriate. For example, medicine. Medicine is a field which is beneficial to the community. We should have doctors amongst us. However, however, for a Muslim male to go and study medicine and specialize in gynecology, we say this is not appropriate. Yes, the community needs gynecologists, but for a Muslim male to specialize in that is not appropriate. For those young people amongst you who don't know what gynecology is, I'll just explain gynecology is basically uh, the field which specializes on women. Women, especially dealing with having children and, and uh, uh, diseases that they may have connected to their reproductive system, etc. Uh, such fields are not appropriate for a Muslim male to specialize in. We should have Muslim females, they should be encouraged to go and get that knowledge to be able to provide for women a, an acceptable, necessary mode of treatment. So, like that, when we look at other professions, for example, say for women, to go into engineering, civil engineering, you know, civil engineering is a project, is a profession which Muslims should know, should have. How do we build our masjids? How do we build our homes? These kind of things. We need this knowledge. It's important. But should a woman go into civil engineering? We say no. Why? Because it's it's a it's a man's world. That is a man's field. Everybody should be dealing with the men. Men all around should have to be dealing with men all the time. And such a profession becomes problematic become problematic because it is known that when women are in circumstances where men dominate, they end up being abused. They end up being harassed. This is just a norm. Everywhere. Regardless of the profession. Also, there are some professions which we can't make a distinction between males and females, meaning we need to have this profession mastered, but in practice, then we need to know that we have limitations in our practice. For example, dentistry. Dentistry is important. We need to have dentists to deal with our teeth. You know, can you imagine your sister or your mother or your wife? And this man is over her. The face is almost in her mouth. It's not something appropriate. So we say we need male dentists, but this is for treating the males. And female dentists treat the females. We need some questions like that. We need both. Right? So when we're considering our future profession, we have to keep in mind what are the Islamic guidelines, you know, which will define for us what fields we can specialize in and those we can.
uh, we have to come up with our careers, you know. So, like uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, are being, are being, they're putting a lot of resources and effort to come up with a curriculum which uh, will help uh, Islam in general. So, the bitter reality is that. No, try to get to a question. Yeah, yeah. As far as uh, uh, physical and applied science is concerned, you have to import it from Western. That one is it. So Correct <coughs> channels so that it can be dealt with officially and, you know, and, and uh, they, uh, we will not be just accused of reacting, you know, burning uh, chairs and attacking the university. And, you know, this, we don't want to do that because that kind of approach it doesn't bring good results. It actually ends up harming our cause. So we need to take the correct channels, deal with it systematically. You know, there is a system of justice here. We do have Muslim, you know, parliamentarians or ministers, whatever. You know, we can get people behind. And once it's done like that, and that teacher gets censored by the university, right, and warned, etc., the word will spread. You better not do it again. The word will get to the other teachers who might be doing it and thinking about doing it. You know, and it will put a stop to it when it's done systematically and the full force of the political uh, machinery is behind it. Consumption of Right? 
So Qitha'iha, he translates in English, in the uh, Yusuf Ali translation, as pot herbs. And in Western slang, pot is the name for marijuana, and so is herb. So he's got double names. <laughs> so, of course, to deal with something like that, then I had to get something more authoritative. And it's the same process I would advise you. You get it from sources where it's already been written down. You can quote back to the sources and uh, deal with it systematically.